Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, it finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with James Cross, a creative director at BBC Creative. James has worked his way gradually up north, working at record labels and creative agencies such as McCann Manchester, before getting headhunted for the BBC's in-house team. Hello there. Great, hi. I'm so sorry. It's quite all right. How is it going? All right. I didn't get. A, I don't think I've got a calendar invite, so I'm just. I'm the most disorganised person in the world, anyway. Well, that's the uh, creative mindset, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. Just an excuse, I think. <laughs> but yes, yeah, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's all good. I just um, sat casually in the garden and um, just happened to look at my phone and I'm like, balls. <laughs> Brilliant. Nice. I mean, because uh, here was me assuming that being part of the, the BBC machine that you're still pulled from pillar to post working because I presume that you're all you, you've all just been on it since COVID started. Oh gosh yeah yeah it's been um, I think it was kind of a big change in our sort of marketing plan for the year so we were sort of happily ticking along making ads for the Olympics and um, various things and then it all kind of went out the window a lot of things stopped getting filmed, events get got cancelled Yeah. Um, and then sort of public opinion, um, I suppose, during when COVID started of the BBC um, actually started to go up because we were kind of getting battered just off the election a little bit with Boris Johnson selling us out a little bit. And then, um, yeah, the public opinion has turned around. It felt like the BBC was more of a glue. So the the whole Bring This Closer campaign um, came from that, really. Yeah. I uh, get the impression that you guys are always up against it in in the BBC machine because no matter what you do, you're always uh, vilified as supporting one side or the other politically. Well, yeah, we don't. Well, the point is we don't support anyone. Yeah, um, it's all about. Um, yeah, we have to be completely neutral. So yeah, Emily Emily Maitlis, as you know, a lot of people really agree with what she said about Dominic Cummings. Yes. Um, it is. It's the BBC isn't a soapbox, um, so it's not surprising. But the BBC also has a problem where it doesn't communicate these things very well. It kind of it acts first and then communicates second when it's a bit too late. But um, yeah, it's um, yeah we do our best. But yeah, we get attacks from every um, every angle. Every morning we get a complaints email which has um, a, a number of complaints about whatever. So it's a saying. Um, you know, the BBC is too far to the left. You'll always, almost always get a, a, the counter argument, the same amount of complaints saying it's too far to the right, all this sort of thing. But, so they um, kind of cancel each other out and you end up nicely in the Pretty middle. much, yeah. A lot of people don't really realise that. But, you know, I think if you hear something that doesn't tally to your view of the world, um, you th- you know, you're, you get angry about it. But, you know, it's all about balance. Does that um, even come through to the uh, creative department? Because um, I don't know, my suspicion is that would always stay on news side of things, current affairs. Um, a little, I suppose. Um, you know, there's certain things that we might write in scripts um, and, you know, work we want to put out, which, you know, may be seen as a bit controversial. The BBC is quite a sort of conservative. It, it doesn't really, you know, there's a across the corporation that you don't want to upset anyone. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, it's always it's always about balance, and then but yeah, in creative it affects what we do as well, definitely. So um, one thing I was interested to get your take on is uh, because you've had a, a, a relatively varied career, but you've worked for two of the big names. So you've worked for McCann and you've yep. worked for BBC uh, Creative. How do, how do they compare? Um, oh, they're, they're very different. Um, I think uh, it's uh, the world of McCann is probably a lot more sort of entrepreneurial and a bit more cutthroat, whereas the BBC environment is is a lot more supportive in terms of uh, you know creating new things and doing things that haven't been done before. You're more likely, I'd say, to get good work out um, at the BBC than McCann um, because you know it's not the traditional commercial ad agency where um, you know you've necessarily got high-paying clients to con- um, to consider and uh, you know make them happy. Um, yeah, the BBC is an environment where you can do a lot better work and you can take a few more gambles and, you know, push the boundary a little bit. And I think, you know, when I look at the work we've done um, in the three years, Tim and I, where we've been at the BBC, I think it far outweighs the previous, you know, 11, 12 years of our career in terms of what we have. Um, and it's more prolific as well. The biggest difference is uh, we're just more prolific in what we do. So. Uh, we always talk about at McCann where it would be an achievement to get, say, four TV ads out in a year. Wow. Um, we're probably doing that in a in a month. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, when I was doing my research for this, I just went through campaign BBC Creative and I've seen at least that many just since lockdown started. Yeah, which is, as a creative, it's so gratifying to work, work in that way. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a joy. There's always something going on. There's always... Um, you know the the next thing. I suppose the 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 bad side of that is that you know sometimes it you can sort of lose a bit of ambition in creatives. So you know as a creative you'll be writing something and if it doesn't get chosen, you know the next proof's coming at the BBC. Whereas if you're say at an agency like McCann, not to win Christmas, you know the Christmas campaign for Aldi would affect him and I for quite a few quite a few months really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's probably a, another big difference. But yeah, that is preferable to me to be able to do so much work. So I first um, saw you uh, talking about your relationship with those, you know, with the, the normal, let's say, creative world and BBC Creative at mm. last year's Drum Awards, the, the Drum Roses yeah. Awards. Yeah. And um, you uh, hinted at the award speech because you guys picked up, of course, uh, a lot of gongs for the World Cup advert. Yeah. I was drunk by this point. I'd just like to carry out. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say next. <laughs> I suspected as much, but it was still, you know, it, it went, it came over well. No, you indicated that at one point you had hesitations about moving across to BBC. Um, and yeah. again, I can, you, we, you don't have to go into it, but, you know, if there's anything well, new. We absolutely yeah. did. Um, BBC Creative was quite a new thing um, when we joined. So it was only sort of six months old. Um, as a proposition and not people didn't really know a great deal about it. We certainly didn't and didn't have sort of significant work. And we were approached by the BBC um, two or three times. Um, and we did turn them down a couple of times thinking, um, you know, it's all the work seems to be is, you know, trailers, freestanders and, you know, we don't want to be doing that. But once we met um, 
Aidan and Laurent, who were the sort of founding ECDs, um, you know, all became clear um, and then seemed like a very calculated risk uh, to us to be able to set up uh, BBC Creative in, in the Northwest. Um, yeah. And yeah, the clients, we were, were told, you know, we'd have BBC Sports and uh, Children's and uh, the charities and learning. Um, it actually seemed like kind of the, the best deal as well. So we were, yeah, delighted and yeah, felt very privileged. And yeah, within a few weeks, we realised that we'd made the right decision. So you and Tim, this is Tim Jones, isn't it? He's your, your yes, creative yeah. other half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so two and a half. Work. We've worked together since, um, oh gosh, uh, 2006 or 2007, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, we've kind of, we've been through it all together. Um, but yeah, Tim... Tim, uh, yeah, we're together in the trenches every day, which is nice. So are you the typical creative pairing? Is it art director, writer, or do you guys duck and weave? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm the writer, Tim's the art director. Um, I think as we got older, um, as we sort of got more experience, we kind of, both of us had sensibilities in each. It's weird, a lot of the copywriting awards that we've won have actually been Tim's copywriting, and a lot of the art direction awards have been sort of my art direction um but so yeah we kind of i think we can both we can both sort of ably do both sort of disciplines but i think we do default to each other's sort of area of expertise yeah uh, regularly and that's how we work as creative directors as well we'll always get each other's opinion on um together which generally we're not always working together these days yeah what's um i know that bbc creative up here um, is a that is a department. At first, I was under the impression this was the whole thing, but it's, there's a big part of the shop is in London, um, isn't it? Yeah. So we are one agency. We just got two locations. Yeah. Um, there's about 150 or so people um, in London, and anything between sort of 25 and 30 of us in in Salford. Um, and what are the creative department that Tim and I can call upon is not just in Salford, it's actually in, in London as well. So in normal times, yeah, we'd easily be in London maybe a couple of days a week. Oh, um, wow. So yeah, it's just it's just two locations. And the Salford office is purely to serve BBC Sport and Children's and Learning because those BBC departments are based at Salford as well. Yeah, so one thing I was interested to kind of break into the music side of things through was of course you did the world cup campaign and yep. you, you had the uh, composition by baronowski done at mm-hmm. abbey road were you able yep. to be there for the session yeah that was that was the coolest one of the coolest days of my career it was um yeah it was amazing to be in in those studios and i was leaning when we were recording i was actually in the studio just watching from the sidelines and leaning on a uh, an old piano uh, which had sort of I don't know screwdrivers laying all over it and stuff, and um, and some guy told me he said, "Oh, that's the Lady Madonna piano." <laughs> As if, and it was just nuts. Yeah, it was just nuts. But yeah, really cool, amazing experience. Yeah, that's the thing. I spoke to um, Steve Albini a couple of weeks ago. Who, oh, wow. uh, yeah, the uh, the the in utero guy, and he said, you know, "I love Abbey Road because you can just say, can we have the Pink Floyd tape machine? Get it in here.'" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is completely like that. It's yeah, such an amazing. It's a magical place. Um, yeah, and I've spent the last two years trying to go back for every yeah. single thing we need it for. How do they uh, How do they look after you there as a client? Is it just like everything's done when you get there, or like- at Abbey Road? Yeah. Um, 
I, I suppose as any studio would, um, there's a, an abundance of tea and biscuits. Um, you know, it's nothing, nothing special about how you're looked after, I'd say. Um, but just, I think just being at the kudos of being there and the sort of the, the magic of the place, it, you know, it really is, um, it has an atmosphere. Um, and yeah, it just feels special. And I think, you know, it really suited that project as well. Yeah. I mean, we've been since we set up keen to do something like that where we can actually because you know most of our orchestral stuff is is rendered in the box VST yeah yeah sure yeah mm-hmm. and um, yeah it's a, it's a great ambition to go down there and just present the dots to the musicians and away you go but uh, I'm guessing it's like far and away above the most of the studio sessions I've done especially here in the north you know you get there at uh, half ten and then the engineer gets out of bed and it's like all right you know uh, should we start setting up some mics or what do you want to do so. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it was it was very pro, very slick. Um, yeah, yeah. I haven't. I don't think I've ever really been to. Nothing springs to mind of other studios I've been to. It hasn't been massively memorable in that sense. But yeah, Abbey Road certainly sticks out. You um, had a bit of a, a musical beginning, didn't you, in your career? Mm, I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to work in the music industry at, um, when I was at school. So. You know, when I was doing my GCSEs, it was sort of a, a time of Britpop and all that sort of thing. Um, so I just wanted to work for, uh, my ambition was to work for Pop Tones when I was, uh, Creation Records when I was 16, 17, which became Pop Tones, so Alan McGee and all that. Um, and at university, I spent offices um, working for free, uh, basically chucking CDs around and listening to demos. Um, which, you know, when you used to send your demo tape in and it arrives in a big sack and they just give it to the work experience kid to listen to it kind of, I think the music industry lost a lot of its magic at that point, realizing that, yeah, why am I listening? And why am I suddenly the judge of people's music? And that's what was happening. You were the A&R representative. Yeah, weirdly. Well, just sort of it, you know, for something uh, to get, let's get that kid doing something. You you can go listen to those for an hour. Um, so I was doing that, um, lugging records around and, uh, I think I was actually a drugs mule as well. Um, <laughs> I'd regularly be given parcels to take to random addresses in Primrose Hill and all this sort of thing, um, which I never questioned at the time. It wasn't until a few years ago, a friend pointed out that was probably what I was doing. <laughs> what was the, um, what was the earlier of the industry? What was, were you a musician or did, what, what did you want to be? Um, are you kind of a bedroom guitarist and messed around with, with, bands uh, in my youth um but sort of never never had enough commitment to it really um you know in the sort of the 20 odd years um i don't think my guitar playing which is just there um has ever ever really improved um you know it's kind of cowboy chords yeah um yeah and so when did you change direction was it after pop tones it was like let's go with straight yeah, well, advertising or? so after pop tones, i graduated and got a job at um, shifty disco records which mm-hmm. is in oxford which is um their claim to fame really was that they well they had a band called the young knives uh, who were good um and doing all right and uh they had tom york's brother's band called the unbelievable truth which is a very underrated band uh, and i did that for a bit so after you know, they kind of allowed me to write press releases at Pop Tones for the Hives yeah. um, when they first sort of uh, were imported, I guess, from Sweden. Um, 
and in writing press releases, I found out that I was quite good at it um, and I was trusted with it. Um, and then the record industry to me was just lots of spreadsheets and uh, sort of lugging CDs around. So yeah. it lost its glamour really quickly, I think. And, you know, it was, uh, there were certainly a pop tones, a lot of drugs around as well. So everyone seemed a bit flaky right? Uh, to me. And it, yeah, it just, it became very uncool very quickly. Yeah, do you think when you see the more industry side of the music industry, would it be the equivalent to not to not to disrespect our our friends in in mm. media, but would it be like I want to be a creative director and ended up working in the media side? Uh, you know, just pushing the adverts onto the billboards and onto the TV. Yeah, may, may possible. I mean, for me, it was um, I think being able to do those press releases and being able to be creative and make something and create something. Um, was exactly what I wanted to do and then flutes my way into an advertising position. Yeah. Um, almost on the basis of being able to talk about Led Zeppelin for an hour, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, so what was that? Was that romancing the interviewer? Yeah, so kind of. So uh, the CD of the agency I went to, um, uh, I think he'd been drinking, but we never opened my collection of um, uh, press releases. This little folder I had and we spoke about Led Zeppelin um, and he, I think he enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, at the end of it, he said, can you start tomorrow? And that was my fluky way into the ad industry. So never had any grand ambition to work in, in advertising at all. Um, and then as soon as I started, I realized I really liked it. And yeah, it's gone, gone away. Since I said to Hugh Todd, uh, who was just recently, until yeah, recently yeah. at Mullen, yeah, he said, uh, I was like, why? young artists young creatives why work in advertising and he said uh, money you get paid for it <laughs> so. yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean it's not it's you know i don't think you're gonna get you can do well of course um but yeah i don't think so even in the from when i was a junior to now salaries aren't massively different for people starting out um yeah you know that was 2003 when i started um wow. but yeah you certainly it's a way to be creative and yeah actually get paid for it yeah. So do you think it's kind of a myth that, uh, or, or the idea that if, if you want to be pulling in huge salaries, then you just, you have to be at the founding partner level for a big agency? Uh, oh, yeah, probably. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I think it's like a sort of, uh, sort of Sarchi, Sarchi brothers myth. It's that sort of 80s, uh, sort of yuppie kind of personality which I don't think really exists anymore. And a lot of the sort of, you know, things like Mad Men kind of sort of perpetuate that myth. Um, yeah. There are obviously people that make a huge amount of money in advertising. Um, and we can all do very well out of it once you get to a more senior level. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's not banking. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's not big finance. Yeah. And that comes up all the time as uh, people always say, uh, uh, the... Um, public think it's Mad Men, whereas on the inside, especially in this age we're in now, um, the creative agencies are uh, running are running around scared of, of clients. I'm not sure mm. what's changed. Does it has that changed in your lifetime? Uh, I think, uh, you know, I'd definitely say, you know, client. It's harder. Commercial agencies maybe find it harder because I think once they say the day you win a client is the day you start losing them and. Yeah. You know, the client uh, generally holds all the power um, because they sort of 
allocate how much money your agency is getting. So, um, you know, I think I can't imagine it's ever been that much different, but you have to please your client. You get these sort of mythical stories of, you know, creative directors grabbing marketing directors by the scruff of the neck and telling them what they're going to do with their money. Yeah. I don't always quite believe it. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, you, you've just got, if you can have, have a good relationship with your clients, so if there's trust each way, um, it generally works really well. And, you know, nobody feels like they're getting ripped off or, you know, the other parties trying to pull one over on them. Um, but yeah, certainly in the bigger agencies I've worked in, you can see that happening on, on most clients. It's, it's kind of about the money and, you know, trying to keep that income stream alive. And well. Yeah. And that's why I was sort of confused about it because, um, you know, without without putting numbers on it, I'm quite new to the to the game career wise, yeah. just careers generally, but also advertising. So uh, mm-hmm. I am trying not to do that thing we discussed, where I'm like, ah, Don Draper, Mad Men, that looks <laughs> like the world to be in. What's going on? Why is everyone complaining about media spend? But um, yeah, no, you just it's kind of just. I think it, I think success in advertising kind of comes down to well, two things: it's relationships and the talent of the creative agency and that involves everyone working on it. You kind of, you know, only as strong as your weakest team member, I suppose. Um, yeah. But yeah, relationships, it's, you know, there's still people that, you know, Tim and I are lucky enough. They still call us to this day, ask us what we're up to or if we're available to do X, Y, and Z. And mm. yeah, that's really gratifying. Yeah. I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if, if, it's, if you're allowed to say if it's in your BBC contracts not to mention but um is there any are there any agencies out there at the moment you have particular respect for you like they are absolutely nailing it and i'd love to be part of that team oh well yeah i mean absolutely i mean i still look to uh for creative as you know one of my favorite agencies around they're amazing and then it comes down to especially the the agencies like whedon and kennedy sort of globally are just amazing here off the year um uncommon um are only a couple of years old there, you know, absolutely incredible. Um, and then sort of the older stores, agencies like BBH, um, yeah. there's still sort of a, a mythical grandeur about them and the work they do is great. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of people doing it very well. Um, but yeah, they're the kind of X factor agencies to me. The ones that, the one that keeps coming up in these discussions uh, for me is Adam and Eve. And um, oh, yeah, I forgot them as well. Yeah. yeah, I think what's really interesting is obviously the founders split off last year and now they look like they're having a race to start the next big one because they've all done new startups again. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, yeah, people like Ben Priest, I used to follow his career when he was at Rainey Kelly, so before uh, he started Adam and Eve, and used to think, yeah, he was he's sort of several years older than me, but I used to think, oh, if I can reach that level by his age, I'll be really happy. Um, but yeah, amazing, amazingly talented people. Um, yeah. And also, the, again, just coming back to it, they all seem really nice and friendly when they're interviewed. And um, yeah, they're just, yeah, they're really nice people from what I, I can get. Do you not buy this myth that if you're super successful, you also have to be a bit of a tough case and be a bit disagreeable? No, I hate, I absolutely loathe all that. Um, uh, no, I don't really respect people. If you know, you don't have to be awful just because you're doing well. That that arrogance is, yeah. I think Tim and I have always prided ourselves on being the opposite of that. Um, yeah, you kind of. 
you still see it. I think it's a bit of a sort of dying character in the ad world, but yeah, there's one or two old school people that we've encountered that, yeah, I'd never care to encounter again. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all uh, we've <laughs> yeah. all been there. But um, let's go through uh, let's go through the music. So obviously, it goes yeah. without saying, you know. And uh, often, sometimes I ask people, "Is it important to you or not?" Well, obviously, it's important to you. Mm-hmm. But was yeah. there was there a single record that kicked things off for you where you were like, "Whoa, I did not know this existed." Uh, in terms of advertising or just music generally? Music generally as a fan. Oh, as a fan. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got very clear memories of loving... Uh, my mum and dad had a tape of Help by the Beatles in the car when we were kids. Um, loving that. But I didn't feel like my musical taste was cool until um, sort of maybe it was 12 or 13 when R.E.M. brought out Monster. Yeah, um, and that was the first. I'd say that's the first cool album I ever bought, um, and then from there, sort of went on this sort of indie odyssey of um, yeah, very various bands that are just amazing. Like I don't know, Radiohead, and that led me into listening to lots of David Bowie, and then you go back and discover bands like The Smiths and and all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I love. I mean. Yeah, my music collection is now completely online, but there was a time when you know, I had thousands of CDs. Um, have you not? Have you gotten into the vinyl thing? Yeah, I've got a lot of vinyl actually. Um, it's all downstairs in boxes. I haven't got uh, an attractive enough record player uh, for my girlfriend Emma to let me have it out <laughs> in the house. But um, yeah, Spotify is on all day. I certainly get the sort of value for money out of that. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, do you work with it on? Uh, sometimes, if I'm writing, no. Uh, yeah. If I'm not, not writing, yes. Um, it's weird. I th- there's so many of my career, um, and I can't really think of examples. But I know I've heard lyrics, and it kind of changes how you're writing something, or you steal a little bit for headline. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's a massive part of what we do, and um, yeah, music's always been important. Definitely. Was there? Um... Because you said you got into, did you say you got into Monster REM when you were mm. twelve? Just there, about twelve, thirteen, I think. Yeah, when it came out. Did you ever have a, that phase of liking stuff that your parents were just not happy with? Um, yeah, my parents were, were a little bit too old for sort of punk. So when I started listening to like the Clash, and they were, I mean, my parents are quite cool. I mean, they're kind of my parents are big sort of fifty these fans have got a jukebox and go to the weekenders and stuff so they're always quite supportive of the music I like um, uh, I don't know maybe I seem to have memories of having um, like the Prodigy on or Chemical Brothers when I was younger and yeah my mum and dad didn't really like it it was all a bit boom 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 yeah what I've uh, noticed sort of happening now is that the generation that grew up with what was considered anti-establishment and edgy, because of course punk is going through its old age. It's having a yeah, yeah, old oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, the complaint often is that I hear from the old people is, "Oh, what we had was edgy. There's nothing. There's nothing offensive now." But my suspicion is that's because they're not listening to uh, the trap scene, XXX Tentacion, you know, and yeah. uh, those mm-hmm. kind of artists. Because we went to see Octavian at the Academy and. That looks like that looked like a punk show, yeah. Uh, oh, wow. yeah. I, or, already, I'm, I'm you know I'm only in my twenties, but I'm too old to stand anywhere near the front, so I just watched it from the back. <laughs> yeah, you um, gotta be careful standing near the front. I once went deaf 
um, in this year for about a fortnight I was at the Charlatans gig when I was about 17 or 18. Oh, wow. I've never stood too near a speaker ever again. Where was that? Um, that was at De Montfort Hall just after um, Us and Us Only came out, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any, other, any other big gigs you went to? Uh, yeah, so uh, Nebworth, Oasis at Nebworth was one of the first gigs I ever went to. Amazing. Um, pretty much. Um, I saw Bowie at Glastonbury, which has since become like legendary. Um, yeah. So that was amazing. Um, yeah, I've been to tons. I used to quite... I was a bit of a nerd and used to give a diary of all the gigs I went to and it, you know, at university it was two or three a week. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, been to, been to some big ones. I went to see Father John Mystic a year or two ago in Manchester. That was, yeah, one of my favourites of recent times. But Was that at the Apollo? It was at the Apollo. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was meant to be there. I had a car accident that night, but yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, oh well, it was really good. I'm <laughs> glad to hear it. <laughs> well, he played um, he played at Albert Hall in Manchester as well, which yeah. again that was yeah about a year before then. It was really cool. Well, I just listened to um, Pure Comedy, and I was like, this is just Elton John from the 70s. <laughs> it is actually. I've never really thought of that. Um, but yeah, it's great. Yeah, I love him. He's he's kind of my, you know, Spotify do that list of your top ten. He's been my number one for about three years. Yeah. Are you a fan of the National? Uh, yeah, don't mind the national. I'm not a massive fan of the guy's voice, but I, yeah, I can listen to the odd odd song. So I'm guessing that you don't also delve into that. The family tree to me looks like um, Interpol and sort of Joy Division. Is that not really your vibe? That kind of dark. Oh uh, no, Joy Division massively is. I think especially because I live in um, Wilmslow, and it's kind of magical to me that just down the road is sort of where Joy Division began. Yeah. Um, yeah, Joy Division. Yeah, huge fan of Joy Division. Uh, Interpol. I find them a bit of a Joy Division cover band, so maybe not so much. But uh, yeah, bands like and what they, you know, New Order and everything, sort of factory related. Um, you know, it's nice coming from the Midlands to move to Manchester, which you know, when we were kids, was always magical from a musical point of view, and far cooler than the Birmingham area. Yeah, well, you know, you guys still have Black Sabbath down there, but um, that's boring. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> swim deep more recently but interestingly you are in the um you say you're in wilmslow yeah mm -hmm. so you're in the hometown of the only super successful manchester band since the 90s uh, the 1975 are from wilmslow so oh that's true yeah doves as well i was a big fan of doves I mean. Doves. <laughs> yeah so um what's the excluding the the, the one we mentioned before being in abbey road what's the best music in an advert that comes to mind um e either a composed track or a synced um i think classically i mean there's kind of three examples i think three are quite cliched examples so you think of you know guinness, uh, guinness uh, <coughs> excuse yeah. me yeah um but then i was thinking actually the use of phil collins in the capri's gorilla ad was absolutely incredible um but composed and i think the fact the fact that sort of nearly 30 years later i know all the lyrics to uh the milky way ad with the red car and the blue car um and i you know that ad i remember my sister and i was well, i'm sure we'd record it and watch it back over and over um that to me is yeah that's that's still magical and still works today i think it was even running relatively recently um well yeah just a, an idea that never died yeah absolutely absolutely 
Um, have you ever had, uh, as a creative, have you ever put something forward to the client uh, on the music side saying, this is the track that we think is working and they've just not had it? <laughs> so many times, yeah. Um, at the BBC, it's very difficult to get anything um, retro out because we're constantly striving for an under 35 audience. So Yeah, why is that battle so hard for the BBC? I don't know. Well, it's it's relevant. So the BBC is obviously struggling with, um, not struggling, it's, its biggest challenge is Netflix and the way people consume media today. So there's a younger audience. Um, and the logical th thing to say is, right, if we're appealing to that younger audience, it needs to be sort of a modern track. Um, and yeah, we've, we've mentioned, had a few times sort of what we think that, you know, it might be some sort of soul track from the seventies or some, you know, I'm sure we've mentioned, had some Herbie Hancock on a yeah. um, recommendation once, but uh, no, it never, never really gets away. Um, and then sort of, again, being a big fan of the charlatans, uh, Tim and I almost put um, um, one to another on a voxel ad and in hindsight, I'm really glad that they turned it down because it would have ruined one of my favorite tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not so. Not for the price tag. Just for your uh, satisfaction, it would have been a bad choice. Yeah, it would have been bad. Um, and that was a funny one. Even Adele, uh, she turned down three hundred grand to use her ad, her That's song awesome. on that ad as well. Um, and we ended up with um, Noel Gallagher's debut uh, solo single, I think. What well, AKA What a Life? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, brilliant. I um, I've been throwing for a loop there. Oh no, because I was thinking about this recently when you mentioned the BBC relevance thing. Because I was thinking, I remember the Radio One upheaval when they got rid of Chris Moyles and brought in Gr Grimshaw, mm -hmm. um, and then of course, inevitably, Grimshaw aged into the demographic they were trying to lose because Radio <laughs> One was just for thirty-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. And I don't um, know. Maybe it's just the media. I don't know. Yeah, there's, I mean, they're supposed to graduate, I think, to Radio Two. Um, yeah. It doesn't even really work. I don't know. I don't know. So as Radio 2, I don't feel ready for Radio 2 yet, though I know I sit firmly in that demographic. I think that's a real problem they maybe have as a brand at the moment because I remember about 2006-07 when Radio 2 was run by, oh, I'm going to be crucified. I can't remember her name. Leslie, I think she was called. Mm -hmm. And that's when they had Russell Brand on and, of course, yes. the, the scandal shut that down. But Radio yeah. 2 was a pretty cool station at that time. Yeah, it went through a yeah a moment. Yeah, having Jonathan Ross on at the weekend was at the time felt quite edgy. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I used to occasionally listen to Terry Wogan as he was he was quite funny, um, yeah. sort of really naff way. Um, but as soon as that uh, as it Ken Bruce comes on, it's yes, bear. yeah, God's waiting room. My dad called. It. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. But um, yeah, I mean, because obviously you want. You don't want people uh, in their thirties to be saying, "I'm not ready to graduate to Radio Two yet," because that's no, no. I think I'm, I'm stuck with six music feels right for me now, even though that sometimes feels a bit um, old. You're a bit old before your time sometimes because it's all you know talking about um, very niche bands from a long time ago. Yes. And stuff, but, but yeah, yeah, it's like, very mighty Boosh record store, but um, yeah, definitely, yeah. Absolutely. Do you um do you ever flick to Radio One and then just check your emotions and go, what is this? Um, no, not really. I mean, my my son's nine. I'm kind of thinking he might ask for it before too long. Um, but no, uh, 
I couldn't really tell you the first thing about what's played on Radio One no. at the moment. I've, I know we've, I've worked with a lot of the DJs because often we're we're getting people like uh, Chloramfo and um, people like Maya Jammer to do uh, voiceovers for us for various things. But uh, yeah. no, I know very little about what is actually played. Well, something I was getting sort of insecure about yesterday because, like all people who were, I'm I'm like so many people in the industry wanted to be. Uh, in a, a massive rock band and it never happened and so I had to find a real mm-hmm. job but you never stop trying most uh, us who work in the actual music side of things you never stop trying you're always making records you're always trying to push it out there and yeah. then I, I was like even though I'm still like under 30 I just couldn't imagine even trying to relate to the young audience <laughs> I don't know what they're into and I, and I wasn't I wasn't cool with them at the time so never mind now yeah 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 I know the feeling yeah yeah, I know the feeling. yeah but um, yeah one one last thing because um Obviously, you'll be wanting to get back to uh, working, presumably in the garden. Um, <laughs> the, I, music-wise, with BBC Creative, um, I get the impression that BBC generally, you have kind of a much not not an easier time, but there's you there's a blanket agreement. You won't have to like negotiate for budgets. Is there stuff no. you can just access? Yeah. So um, BBC has a, a, a blanket licensing agreement for most. Um, most music, not every piece of music. So we can run it through a system to see whether we can clear it or not. So not having to spend half your production budget on a big track, if you if that's what you want, um, is great. And it always adds a little bit of an X factor to what you're doing. But uh, I'd say still, probably the majority of what we do still uses library music, um, yeah. just because it's easier. I mean, there's certain, if the tracks are published in the USA or they're by the Beatles or, or whatever, you generally can't get hold of that and you can't just use that as you, as you wish. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that does make, um, the whole production side of what we do a lot easier, certainly. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you say about the Beatles, cause I don't know if you saw, uh, the chat I had with Rory, uh, Sutherland, he was saying, I'm just, I don't know if the Beatles have handled their legacy that well, because they're just so inaccessible now. Well, it's funny. It always reminds me of that again. It's the Led Zeppelin kind of tried to do the same until I heard they found out there was a band on Spotify called. So they refused to let Spotify access yeah. their music for years, um, and then found out that this tribute band called Led Zepp again or something like that um, were, had become millionaires because they'd done such uh, good sound alikes. And they realised how much money they were missing out on. But yeah, I think Rory Sutherland is right. Um, yeah, the Beatles probably haven't done enough. Yeah, yeah, because there's that famous Mad Men. That thirty seconds on Mad Men cost two hundred and fifty grand for Tomorrow Never Knows. Not even like a massive sing, like massively sing along Beatles song. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's crazy, crazy. But you know, they're the Beatles and can. <laughs> Yeah, it's still if you go to Piccadilly Records, it's still going to be thirty, thirty-five quid for one of the vinyls. So that's mad. That's absolutely crazy. I'm lucky enough I inherited all the Beatles and Stone stuff from my parents. So um, yeah, yeah, got all those records downstairs. Best Stones album? Uh, probably Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street. There's yeah. no contender. Yeah, I think that's a cliched answer. But yeah, that's. Um, I always want to go deeper and be like, best track from Exile on Main Street. <laughs> Um, Tumbling Dice, I think, is yeah, is where I tend to go. Um, yeah. yeah, quite regularly. That's it. I always go. Just want to see his face into Let It Loose. Just a great double sider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, amazing. Cool. So, um, hey, well, thanks for your time. I suppose I'll let you get back to it. 
Thanks, Greg. And I'm so sorry I was late, and I'm so sorry I'm so disorganised. Oh, the BBC is a disgrace to the taxpayer. No, it's fine. Um, yeah, so you're in Media City in peacetime, I presume, so... Um... In peacetime, yes. I haven't been there for... It feels like ages since I've been to Media City, but yeah, we're all closed down and yeah. working from home for the foreseeable. Well, this is like the something like the 20th one of these I've recorded, and we're going to put out one a week. So by the time it comes out, it'll be snowing, and this won't be relevant. So uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't so yeah. Who's that? Okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Well, I guess uh, hopefully we'll see you around Media City when you're back. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks, Greg. Thanks so much. No problem. Take care. Speak soon. Cheers. Take care.